0: Uh, the readings: Haggai, chapter 2, verses uh, 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garments, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a, person, it's, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled now give careful thought to this from this day on consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple when anyone came to a heap of twenty measures there were only ten when anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures there were only twenty I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord from this day on From this twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day uh, when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree, have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you.
1: for reading for us. Uh, Keep Haggai chapter 2 open in front of you. Uh, If you're using the weekend booklet, we're on page 11, uh, where the outline for this uh, talk is. It's great coming to uh, people from London. The prayers led by an iPad. So modern. I'm still lots of paper. Unenvironmentally friendly me. Uh, Well done. We've got one of our preachers actually, on our team who preaches from his Kindle. Um, and prefers that to the iPad because there's no backlight coming up, uh, which in, in darker surroundings makes it uh, better, he says, as I still type away and print off in the old-fashioned way uh, in the paper. Well, there you go. Uh, let me say, I thought uh, Team 10 were robbed last night. Uh, that, was the team, that, that was the team that I was on. I, I thought we were clearly the best uh, team, um, uh, I thought Adrian was a remarkable salesman. Where is Adrian? Are you here, Adrian? Ad- Adrian, I reckon that you could sell sheep farming to the New Zealanders, and I reckon you could sell oil, drilling for oil to the Saudi Arabians. I, I reckon you've got a natural gift of, uh, of selling, and I want to employ you when we come to our church gift appeal day.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: uh, we, 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 we want you up north that day. I reckon you'd be terrific for us. That's great. Now... Have you heard the story of the child who asked his mother where God is? And the mother said, well, God's everywhere. The child then asked, is God in the kitchen? Yes, I suppose God is in the kitchen. Is God on the kitchen table? Well, scratching her head, the mother uh, replied in the affirmative. Is God in this jam jar? The child asked. Well, the mother's doctrine of the omnipresence of God was intact, and so she said, Yes, got him! (laughs) Cried the child. Catching hold of God, bringing God down to our size, domesticating God, or thinking that God is at our beck and call, that we can get God to do whatever we want, actually is not far from the surface of us as Christians, we wouldn't express it as crassly as that. But not far below the surface is the thought in most of us that if we do things the right way, God will bless us. (coughs) Let me give you some examples that I've read about recently. How does revival happen? Well, I read a, uh, an article in a Christian magazine recently that told us that historians have researched great revivals of the past and they have identified similar things that have happened on each, each occasion, like uh, the church being repentant, the church being uh, at prayer, good things. But the slight hint in the article was that if the church got and did those things again, then God would have no other option but to bring revival again. And that's a got him theology. God would have to do what we declared, because we'd done the right things. Or a more crass example, have you come across the writings of Kenneth Hagan? He's dead now, but he uh, was an American tele-evangelist. Uh, You can buy his books in the Christian bookshop not far from us, though I am operating a campaign to make it more difficult for you to buy his books, because I go into the Christian bookshop and when I find a Kenneth Hagan book, I turn the spine round so that all you can see is the, the, the kind of pages. That's my ministry in retirement. I'm going to give myself in retirement to going around Christian bookshops and turning the dodgy books round. So and, and, or either that or I'm going to pray the Lord gives me enough money to buy the books, so that pe- but that then might make the printers think that it's successful and make more of them. So I'm going to go for the turning round of the spine. Um, anyway, I bought this book by Kenneth Hagen. It's entitled, this is the title of the book, no joke. How to write your own ticket with God. And uh, I'll quote you, this is a direct quote from Kenneth Hagin. He says this, If anybody anywhere will take the following four steps, or put these four principles into operation, God will always give you whatever you ask, he will have no other option. He calls it the formula of faith. It's crass, isn't it? You and I wouldn't think that that could ever be written by a Christian person, but I want to suggest to you this morning that the that the theology of a him doesn't lie that far below the surface of us all. Let's just remind ourselves where we are in the book of Haggai. You'll remember that the people have returned back from exile, They were sent into exile for 70 years as a result of the disobedience of the people and the disobedience of the king. They went into exile into Babylon under the judgment of God. But God faithful to his promise, kept a remnant faithful to him through that exile. And to fulfil what he had said through the prophet Jeremiah, that exile in Babylon only lasted 70 years. And people were allowed after 70 years, to return to Jerusalem. And when they returned to Jerusalem, a massive building project faced them. The first project was to rebuild a temple, to build a house for God. The project had ground to a halt in 520 BC. And the prophet Haggai has come and in chapter 1, has called the people back to put in temple building as the first priority to put the priority of God above their own comfort, above their own panelled house. And the good news was that by the end of chapter 1, people have been obedient. They are back at work. But we saw yesterday that that being back at work, they're obeying God and working on the temple, actually was the evidence of God at work in them. God's presence and his power. I am with you and him stirring them up. We saw how they were to be motivated to carry on at that work as they remembered the past promise of God, I am with you, and they remember the future work that God is taking all of history to. The people are, are, are at work. Well, in our passage that's just been read for us, this morning we're going to learn about how do the present blessings of God come. How is it that God blesses His people. And it's an important thing for the people to learn. How do the present blessings of God come? Well, verse 10. It's the 18th of December, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of King Darius. We are some 15 weeks after Haggai has first spoken at the beginning of chapter 1. We're some 12 weeks after the people have come and are back at work. Well, in those days there was no Christmas, they hadn't heard of office parties, there was no tinsel, no carol singers, and so Haggai teaches them a vital lesson about what they're doing. They need to learn not what stops the temple being built, what brings them a lack of motivation, but now they need to learn how God brings blessing. And they need to learn it from two ways. First from the law and then secondly from their present experience. First they need to learn how the blessing of God comes and they need to learn from the law. You can see in verse 11, this is what the Lord Almighty says, ask the the priests what the law says. Now the priests were a group of people in the Old Testament who were the mediators between God and the people, and the people and God. Principally that would have been seen in the sacrificial system, the priests offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people in the temple. But in Leviticus chapter 10 the priests had a second important role, they were the people who taught the law that God had given to the people. They were the preachers of the day, they were the legal experts of the day. If you had a question about the law, you would go to the priests, because the priests knew the law inside out. And they would give you a legal ruling in accordance with what the law taught. So ask the priests what the law says. And there are two questions that the legal hacks are to deliver a verdict on, to bring a judgment about. Ask the priest what the law says, and there are two questions, they're flip sides of the same coin. And the first one, case study one, is, is defilement catching? Ask the priest what the law says, if a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread, or stew, or some wine, or oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? Visual aid. In the ancient world, people often carried food in a fold of a garment, like they'd bring part of the tunic up and they'd carry something in the fold of the garment. Now the question is, if you carried consecrated food in the fold of your garment, and that consecrated food has been removed, and some other food then goes into the fold of the garment, does it become consecrated? That is, does it become set apart? Does it become holy? Does it become special by mere association with the garment? Is defilement, sorry, is defilement catching? So if... So, it's not the wrong way round, is, is consecration catching? In other words, so it's the wrong way around in the notes. That's not dreadful. <laughs> That's my typing. The first, let's get it clear. Is consecration catching? In other words, if you put some consecrated food in, take it out, and then put something else in, does the consecration spread? Is it catching? Well, the legal hacks have no difficulty answering. The answer is... No, consecration is not catching. Leviticus 11 is crystal clear on it. The legal experts would have no difficulty. The second question is, is defilement, can you swap them around in the notes, is defilement catching? So verse 13, then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of those things, does it become defiled? Imagine you've just touched a dead rat or a dead mouse and you then touch one of these foods, does it become defiled? The dead animal is defiled. Does when you then touch the dead animal and touch one of these other things, does the food you've just touched become defiled? And again notice the legal experts have no difficulty answering. Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Let me see if I can bring it up to date. We used to live, not far from here, I spent the first 18 years of my life in Rickmansworth, just down the road. In fact, coming here on Friday, I drove past our old house. It was a big house with a big garden, and we had apple trees in the garden. I think there were six, but it might have been seven or eight apple trees in the back garden. It felt like an orchard to us as kids. My mother, every September, October, would either pick the apples off the ground or off the trees and she would wrap each apple in a piece of newspaper and she would put the apples in boxes and the boxes would go in the garage of our house where it was cool and it meant we had apples all the way through the next year right until the next harvest my mother knew every apple recipe known to humanity (laughs) we had apples for pudding for every dessert I could ever remember (laughs) My, my mother was canny, sometimes she'd put cochineal in the, um, in the apple sauce bit and make it look red to make us think that we weren't having apples, but we knew it was apple. <laughs> Every recipe known to humanity. Now do you know a thing about apples and boxing apples? If you put one good apple in a box of bad apples... Do you think the one good apple will turn a box of bad apples good? No. But if you've got one bad apple in a box of good apples, left for six months, through the spring, do you know what happens to the whole box of apples? One bad apple can turn the whole box of good apples bad. We used to pray for that as
0: kids.
1: (laughs) You see, see we wanted to have angel delight and be like normal children. (laughs) Never happened. If If you put one well person on a ward of people with infectious disease, does the one well person make all the ill people well? no but if you put one person with a highly contagious disease in a room full of well people last weekend we went to London it was the end of half term we went and uh, stayed with some friends my wife and daughter had been in London having a girly kind of three days uh, before the rest of us went down to uh, London for the weekend Katie on the Friday night started throwing up it's gross (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: on Sunday afternoon my eldest child started throwing up and had Monday off school on Monday night my youngest son started throwing up and he had Tuesday off school on Tuesday my wife started throwing up and she had Wednesday in bed and guess what yes Thursday it was my turn we just, it just went through us all one by one Is consecration catching? No. Is defilement catching? Yes. Now notice how Haggai applies it in verse 14. Then Haggai said, notice the little link word. So, so it is with this people, and this nation in my sight declares the Lord, whatever they do, and whatever they offer there, that is in the temple, is defiled. Now I wonder whether you can see what God is saying. The people of Judah have disobeyed God in their failure to build the temple. And that had made God angry with them, such that he brought judgment on them of all the failed harvests. Now they are back at work. And the question that will be in their mind is this. Has their obedience undone the effect of their disobedience? In other words, has their obedience somehow atoned for their past disobedience? Has their present faithfulness in obeying the command to build the temple wiped out the effects of their disobedience before? And the answer is no. In other words, present obedience does not undo past disobedience. In other words, past disobedience, past sinfulness cannot be atoned for by present obedience, by turning over a new leaf, by doing the right thing, by doing good things. In other words, you can't switch the blessing of God on by starting to obey him if in the past you've disobeyed him. Now Haggai at this point doesn't explain how is it possible for God to bless in the present when the people have been disobedient in the past. You and I know that the answer, to how is it possible for God to bless a people who are defiled by sin? We know that the answer is through the death of Jesus, don't we? It is only the death of Jesus that takes the right anger of God at our sin that makes it possible for God to bless us in the present. Haggai doesn't explain that, but he does want to alert the people so that they don't start thinking that it's their present obedience that somehow has forced God or turned God on to have to uh, uh, bless them. (coughs) If they thought, if that was to be allowed to be thought, then they would start to think that they've domesticated God, that they've got him. That their obedience somehow forces God to have to bless. No, God can only bless sinful people because his anger is satisfied at the death of Jesus. They need to learn that present blessing is going to come on them. Learn from the law. The law explained it. Consecration isn't catching, but defilement is. And the people's disobedience of God meant they were defiled completely. They were defiled throughout. Everything they do and everything they offer there is defiled. It's only going to be undone, not by what they do. Now I'm sure on the Christianity Explored course that we were he- hearing about before that many non-Christians don't get that, do they? You see, they think that if they've done rubbish stuff in the past, they, they've, they've been sinful, they've rejected God, they turn turned their back on him, they've pushed him away, e- either through apathetic indifference or open hostility, they've pushed God away. They think so often that if they start doing good things, that, that somehow will undo all the bad things they've done. And they don't get that it's actually mercy through the cross. So do pray for those people on Tuesday night. Pray that they get it. Learn from the Lord. Then, secondly, over the page, learn from the present. Learn from present experience in verse 15, notice again, Haggai calls on the people to give careful thought. Put your thinking caps on, guys. Give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider things, how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of uh, 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a vine to, uh, vine to draw 50 measures, there were only 10. Now, why was that? Well, it's the same economic reality as chapter 1. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you didn't turn to me, declares the Lord. But, verse 18, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. So, give careful thought. And now, is there yet, today, any seed left in the barn? where answer is no. Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. I wonder whether you can see what's uh, being said. The people have started to obey God 12 weeks ago. But here we are on the 18th of December... 12 weeks after they've been obedient to God, and yet there is still no change in the economic reality. The situation is exactly the same economically as it was 12 weeks ago, indeed as it was on the day they laid the foundation of the temple. But can you see that in verse 19, the Lord says, from this day on I will bless you. So, from now on, I will bless you, implication, from now on, the crops are going to come. From now on, there will be seed in the barn. From now on, there will be wine in the vat. From this day on, I will bless you. But notice, there has been a 12-week time lag between when the people obeyed and when the Lord blesses. Now, why? Why is there a 12-week time lag between when the people obey and when the Lord blesses? Well, the commentator suggests two possible answers. I tend to veer towards the second, but the first is possibly this, that the Lord is testing the reality of their obedience. Will they obey just because it's the right thing to do? Or are they going to be motivated by thinking that, well, if we obey, we get the blessing. Will they obey just because it's the right thing to do? And there may be something of that. In it, because I wonder whether you've noticed with some people, people will, well, they'll be Christian when God delivers them what they think they ought to have, but if He doesn't deliver them what they ought think they think they ought to have, they give up on Him. That's what happened between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, wasn't it? On Palm Sunday, the crowd they visually and verbally acclaim Jesus to be King, don't they, and cry Hosanna, Lord save us. They visually, with their palm branches and cloaks, declare him to be king. They verbally, with their mouths, declare him to be king. And Jesus says that's right, because when the Pharisees say, tell your disciples to stop, Jesus says, well, if they stop, the stones themselves will cry out. It's exactly the right thing to cry out Jesus is king. But by Good Friday, when he hasn't delivered what they thought a king ought to deliver, when he's done nothing that they thought, what do they do? Cry crucify. You'll find people who've done that. They'll have started out as a Christian, seemingly. But when Jesus doesn't give them what they thought they ought to get, they give up. And so it might be here that God is testing the reality of their obedience, the reality of faith. They're doing the right thing just because it's the right thing, you know, obedience to God. And I wonder whether the second option that the commentators go for is more likely, and it's that God is just sovereign over blessings. God is just sovereign over blessing. If God had not said in verse 19, from this day on I will bless you, do you think the people would
2: have been blessed?
1: However obedient they are, do you think the situation economically would have changed? Now the point is the economic situation that they experience is entirely under God's sovereign hand. It's entirely grace. If God had chosen not to bless them, there would have been nothing they could have done about it. It's all grace, isn't it? And let me say, is that not true in your experience too? Everything that you have that is good and is of God and is of a blessing today, whether it's in your own personal life or corporately as CCM, is it not the result of God's good grace towards you? If God had decided he was not going to bless you either individually or corporately as a church, is there anything you could have done that would have changed the situation? Even doing the right things, even doing good things, even, even having record numbers on Sunday, record numbers at the prayer meeting, and record giving in the bank account. I wonder if you can see what Haggai is teaching the people. They mustn't think that their present obedience to his command is like a magic formula that twists God's arm into having to bless. God's blessing is entirely his mercy in giving them what they don't deserve, entirely giving them grace what they haven't earned. It's mercy and grace. And it's entirely under his sovereign hand can I say that I think the Gotim theology is not far from the surface of most of us and yet temple building work and the blessings that come to us in the present as a result of it we need to grasp are actually under the sovereign hand of God And are not the result of some spiritual formula we follow. Even some good things we do. Can I suggest three implications of that for temple building for you and for me? Here's the first. I think that ought to humble us. Sovereign grace ought to humble us. It is not the things that we do that have brought us our present blessings. You being Christian here this morning is not the result of anything you have done. The blessings you experience as a church are not because of anything you have done. Can I say that for us who are what pretty affluent pretty middle class, pretty articulate. Saw that in Dragon's Den last night. Pretty clever. I think I've met so many people with second degrees in a weekend as I have here. You're bright, you're intelligent, you're articulate, you're affluent, you're socially able. You've got it loaded in your stack. And the danger is you'll think it's those things that are the reason that God is blessing you. You'll think it's what you've done. You'll think it's because of who you are and the kind of things you've done. And yet sovereign grace fundamentally humbles us, doesn't it? And reminds us that it's not who we are and our background that has led to God blessing CCM. Can I say, I was saying on Friday night, one of the great joys of having lived over the last 30 years as a Christian and seeing the number of churches that have just grown and grown and grown in London, it is a most thrilling thing. But it's not not because of anything impressive about you guys. It's just because God's good. And he has been sovereignly merciful and gracious and friends that ought to humble us so let me ask you will you do the exercise this morning of just asking the Holy Spirit to point out any pride that lurks in you as an individual or as a church family and ask for forgiveness for it and come back humbly before our God acknowledging his mercy and grace it ought to humble us Here, secondly it ought to make us dependent it'll make you dependent in evangelism, in temple building, won't it? You see, if it's not what you do and it's entirely what God does, then it will make you dependent on him. It, it'll stop you putting your dependence in the things you organise even. Don't mishear me here, don't mishear me. I'm all for lovely dinners. I'm all for articulate speakers who preach the gospel clearly. Clearly. Absolutely. But don't start putting your confidence in your ability to put on decent events. Your dependence is in the sovereign God, isn't it? And that means you will pray. Because you will pray and realise that it's not what you have done, it's what he will do. Churches that get this pray more because they acknowledge their dependency isn't in themselves but is fundamentally in what God can do it stops us putting confidence in ourselves and thirdly, so it's humbling it makes us dependent and then thirdly can I say, is this is wonderfully liberating yes, the people of Judah were to be obedient and they were obedient But their obedience wasn't what turned on the blessing, it was the sovereign hand of God. Now, in our own Christian work, that is wonderfully liberating. Because it means ultimately that in the work we do the results are not in our hands. They're in God's. Let me illustrate, I thought the interview we had yesterday morning with Debs was terrific. It wasn't like an interview I conducted with a mission partner a number of years ago. A guy had come back from Morocco, uh, we were partnering with him, he came back from Morocco and, um, and I was interviewing him. Boy, I was stupid beyond belief. I said to him, tell us of the fruits that you've seen from your ministry. He said, we haven't seen much. I said, well, how many people have you seen converted in the last year? We haven't seen anyone converted in the last year. And what I was subtly doing was suggesting that his worth as a missionary was measured by his results. As if he is responsible for the results, as if it's not in the sovereign hand of God. Better questions would have been, have you worked hard to be faithful at engaging people with the gospel. If he'd said no to that, we might have thought questions about our partnership with him, but not the results. When you have your mission week at the end of March, is it not wonderfully liberating that the results are not in your hands? Because, just for example, I hope and pray this won't be the case, but if you got little response, if you think it's in your hands, you'll slash your wrist. Or you'll give up doing it. You will be fundamentally discouraged to not stick at the task. What will keep you at a lifetime of this is being liberated from thinking it's what you do. Don't mishear me. Be faithful. Obey. But remember the results are in God's hands. It's wonderfully liberating. It was John Chapman who we were talking about on Friday night. It was John Chapman who first alerted me so, the importance of in evangelism getting clear who does what. Get clear that all we have to do is be faithful to the work of explaining the gospel to people, engaging people with the gospel, and trusting the sovereign God to do his work. That's what Jesus did, wasn't it? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 10? Jesus went through the villages of Galilee, and do you know the response he got? nothing best preacher ever better than Matt Fuller (laughs) best preacher ever best visual aids ever (laughs) I was told the props we were using for the Dragon's Den last night came from Matt Fuller's visual aid prop box yeah Jesus better visual aids (laughs) Best preacher, best visual aids, no response. And what, what does Jesus do? I, he prays, I thank you Lord of heaven and earth that you give to me those you choose to give me. And what does he then do? He preaches an evangelistic sermon. Come to me all who, are la- who labour and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Sticks at the task. What, what, what kept Jesus doing that? Because he understood where blessing comes from. So, blessing under the sovereign hand of God, which humbles us, keeps us dependent, and it's wonderfully liberating to stick at the task. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of mercy and grace. That you don't give us what we deserve and you do give us what we don't deserve. Thank you that it's nothing we've earned, nothing we've merited, that any of the blessings that we experience today have come, we come humbled before your throne. we come dependent on you, and we come liberated that we can keep doing the work, because it's under your control, and we thank you in Jesus' name, Amen. Can I just say, I don't know how we're doing this, but I was alerted before we came away to the weekend that in the next session there is a Q&A done some, being done somehow. I don't know how we're doing that, but my last talk is deliberately shorter so that there is time for Q&A. So if there aren't any Q&A, it'll just be a shorter session. <laughs>